0: Our Gospel lesson this morning that Marcia read for us is one account of one of the most familiar scenes in Scripture. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is calling his first disciples with a very simple invitation and a promise. He runs into these two brothers who are fishing. I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of these young fishermen. Imagine what you'd see. Imagine the boats, imagine the sea, imagine the smells, the feelings that you'd experience in this situation with Jesus where this stranger comes up to you and says, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. Matthew writes that immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then he moves on with these two new followers in tow, and he sees two more brothers, James and John. And this time they're fishing also, and they're fishing with their father. It says they're mending their nets, mending their nets. And our text says, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This story of Jesus calling the disciples, it's one of my favorite glimpses that we have of Jesus in the Gospels, but, but also of these four young men. We need to set the context a little bit though first. This is the beginning of what we call Jesus' documented ministry. I emphasize that word documented because we know that Jesus was doing stuff his whole life, but this is the beginning of when his ministry gets recorded we know that he's already a teacher he's been studying in the in the synagogues since he was a young a young boy he's been learning hebrew he's become proficient in the ways and in the in the knowledge of the jewish rabbi since he was a young boy he had been studying scripture in order to reach this point but if jesus is going to be a rabbi a rabbi is a teacher A teacher can't be a teacher, and many of you are teachers, you can't be a teacher without students, right? Without students. So to be a teacher, Jesus needed students, and this is where our story gets interesting. Because, you see, Jesus doesn't follow the normal route, first of all, he doesn't follow the normal route to do just about anything, but he doesn't follow the normal route to take on eager students, Eager students who would have sought after him, whose parents would have lobbied for these prestigious discipleship slots. This was the practice. Not unlike unlike today's race for college admissions, parents worked hard to place their children, their adolescent children, with a solid rabbi. From a young age, the children would hang out at the synagogue hoping that they would get picked so that they could learn from the best. It was a symbol of status, but also one of intelligence and piety. To have your child with the best rabbis reflected well on you, on your family, and then it would ensure a position of respect in the community or even power for your child. It was like a combination of getting into the best college, landing the best internships that would then lead to the best jobs, all at the age of 12, 11. But instead of competing with the Harvards and Yales of rabbis, Jesus takes a very different approach. He goes to this lake, Sea of Galilee, in a very rural area where trades were practiced, and he encounters these young men who are doing what they know how to do. Now, what's complex about this is that These young men, I call them young men, but but in terms of prospective rabbinical students, they were not young men. They were past the prime. They, They were the ones who didn't get picked, or who couldn't get picked, or who wouldn't get picked. They were practicing a trade. They passed the point of being what would be considered a traditional rabbinical student. They've got a job, they've been trained, they're fishermen, they're working. In the case of James and John, they're working with their father. They're going to take over his trade. Their lives are set, their paths are known. And yet it's these fishermen, the ones who've got a path, that Jesus disrupts, disturbs, distracts, and will ultimately disciple. But it all starts with that invitation, that very simple invitation, follow me. Follow me, a rabbi without students. Follow me, leave your father. Follow me, abandon your nets. Follow me. It's a simple question, but it's a very tall ask. It's a big request that Jesus is making. It's an invitation absolutely to something amazing, but they didn't have a way to know that. It's a lot to ask of these young men. But in a split second, our text says both times that the brothers dropped their nets immediately and followed. In a split second, they make this decision to take the risks, all of them that they might be, and follow Jesus. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, is it really a risk? They didn't have, you know, it all going for them. And so this guy comes along and says, I've got another path for you. Perhaps they're jumping at it, but I don't think so. I at least struggle with that a little bit, because I look at it, and they've passed this point where where what he's even possibly inviting them to, they've passed the point where it would even be something they would think might happen. They're now knowing what their path is. They're in it. But in this split second, when Jesus says, drop it all, drop what you know, and come and follow me, they do it. It feels a little strange to me. But it's a strange beginning to what's going to be a strange experience for their, for their whole time with Jesus. He's, he's inviting them in a strange way to a strange life of following this man, this rabbi, this one, this God, who is like no other. And when God calls, when God invites us to follow, and when we drop our nets and we follow... God does strange things with our lives. That's the, that's the wonder and beauty of the invitation, of the call. This word call, it's used a lot in church speak. We hear it a lot. Sometimes we talk about it in a broad sense, as in, I'm trying to know what I'm called to do in my life. But we also use it in a more narrow sense, like a pastor speaking a, seeking a specific call to a church, or even for some of you, accepting a call to serve as a deacon or an elder in the church. But in our context this morning, I want to focus on call as being this simple invitation, an invitation to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Christ. This call is an invitation, an invitation that starts with Jesus summoning us to come and follow him. And it continues with the transformation that then happens in our lives when we choose to say, okay, I'll follow. When we submit ourselves to this call, this invitation. The idea of submission, the invitation to submit ourselves to God, the idea of our choice to submit ourselves, it's one that comes up throughout Matthew's gospel. And I actually realize in looking back i talk about it a lot i talk about this concept a lot because i have really concluded that it's integral to our christian life the idea of saying to god here i am use me i'll go i'll follow last week i shared about dr king's prayer of submission to god his prayer that god would use him and his acknowledgement that he didn't quite understand how that was going to happen he couldn't see how it was going to happen But his faith said, even though I can't see it, even though I can't understand it, God, use me in some way. Use even me. For the disciples in our gospel lesson, submission, that act of saying, okay, I'll follow, submission meant literally dropping their nets where they were and leaving their families to follow Jesus. Their submission was full and unequivocal, and without knowledge of what God would do with them. And and this is important. The disciples had no clue what was in store for them. And still, they submitted to God. They had to make that split-second decision when Jesus said, follow me. And they followed. They had no no way to know that they were going to be following a man who would do all these things that are listed in that last verse that that Marcia read, that they would follow a man who would heal the lame, cure the sick, give sight to the blind, raise the dead, love the unlivable, walk on water, calm the seas, and then who would ultimately be arrested, tortured, and murdered. They had no way to know that they would be left alone in their loss at his death, left questioning whether they made the right decision to leave their nets. Their submission to Jesus when they answered his invitation continued each step along their journey renewed daily as they continued to follow jesus all the way to the cross and the tomb i'm often drawn to thinking about those disciples during those three days following the death of jesus i can't help but wonder if they struggled with their decision to submit to god with that decision to even to drop their nets Had they bet on the wrong hand and gone all in on a loser? Those days must have been long and painful. I can't help but wonder whether they regretted their submission or whether, in the moments of darkness and confusion, they renewed it. They had seen and and experienced so much with Jesus— I think they probably had moments of both, of that renewal and that regret, that tension that we often live in. But what we know know is that these earliest followers of Jesus, the ones who were left empty-handed at the foot of the cross, these earliest followers of Jesus, they must have held on to something. Something that started in that moment when they initially dropped their nets and said, "Okay, I will follow. But something, the renewed call that happened when they followed Jesus each day as he loved, healed, forgave, cured, tended, cared for, accepted, welcomed, and lived among God's people. The call started with the invitation, follow me. But the call was made more clear and more real when they began to know Jesus, when they fell in love with Jesus. He was their friend he was their brother they watched him transform lives it was in that in those experiences that they truly began to know and understand the one they were following you see submission to god following god dropping nets it's just the beginning understanding our call means understanding jesus understanding our call means drawing near to god understanding our call means inviting and invoking the presence of god's holy spirit in our lives the one who is to help us help us draw near what good is it to say yes and drop your nets if we don't pick up the next step and follow it doesn't say that they dropped their nets and were done. It's they dropped their nets and they followed. Following Christ means knowing who Christ was and what he did. It's then that we can also be certain or, or at least reassured that we're following the one who we seek to follow. When we learn about God through the reading and study of Scripture, through thoughtful engagement with others, through prayer... We begin to see more clearly this one who is inviting us to follow. I like to focus on that split-second decision that the disciples made to drop their nets. I think it makes for a jaw-dropping image, right? It makes for good television, as they say. When I place myself in their shoes, I often like to wonder would I do would I do the same? Would I take my comfort and my job and exchange it for the unknown, and for following an unknown man, an unknown teacher? But really, our whole lives are made of these split-second decisions. I don't need to imagine I don't need to imagine the lives of those fishermen. Our whole lives, our whole lives, are made up of these split second decisions. We make choices all the time that can boil down to the exact same choice that those young men were facing on the seashore. Will I follow? Will I follow? Will I be guided by Christ's commandments to love God and to love my neighbor? Over and over again, will I follow? Will I do the difficult work of seeking to know who Christ was and who Christ is in my life? To accept the challenge of putting Christ at the center of my life in a world that is so often grounded on other values? These split second decisions, though, as, as we make them, we're not alone. We're not alone in making them. Jesus says there's going to be this advocate, this helper. I like the Greek word, the paraclete, this helper, the Holy Spirit. We have a lot of names for the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's a difficult concept to understand, and so throughout history, there's been these different ways of trying to understand and describe this presence of God in our lives that helps us, that's ready to help us, to walk alongside us, in these split-second decisions. Holy Spirit. We've also been given the gift of Scripture. The gift of Scripture and the ability to use our brains and study Scripture. And the gift of others on the journey with whom to look at Scripture. We've given this, this gift of Scripture to help us know a little bit more about who God is, what God's nature is, and how to follow Christ. Holy Spirit comes into play again because it's through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we can study and engage with Scripture and understand something of it. It's through the Holy Spirit, with Scripture, and with these others on the journey, that we're able to continue over and over again to begin this process anew, of dropping our nets, making those split-second decisions to say, yes, I will continue to follow. And so we may not have literal nets to drop. Some of you might, I don't. We may not have literal nets to drop. And for us, following Jesus doesn't even mean walking away from everything we know. In fact, it might be easier if it did, right? But we don't have that ability. For us, we've been given these tools, though, these tools for the journey. We've been given siblings in faith, on the journey with whom to explore all these tools, tools of scripture, tools of prayer and even that ultimate gift, that ultimate tool of the Holy Spirit to help us navigate and answer that question of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus together that's what we're about that's what our journey is about, that's what we do in the Christian life follow me. And immediately, they followed him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.